My name is Travis Atkinson, and I am social distancing from my basement in cloudy Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is about three hours from Chicago and two hours from Detroit. Hello and welcome to Closer Social Distancing, where we're helping each other stay connected and inspired while physically apart. I'm Alex, and in this episode, I interview Travis Atkinson, a behavioral health expert who specializes in the system-wide organization of mental health services. We talk about how the COVID-19 pandemic is adding strain to an already fragile mental health system, how health systems can adapt to better serve mental health patients, and how each of us can do our part to help the people in our lives. For more content like our latest animated video called The Three Components of Connectedness, head over to closersocialdistancing.com. We have more great interviews coming your way each week, so be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss a thing. Well, thank you so much for joining, Travis. Really excited for what we're going to talk about today. Uh, let's start by telling everyone uh, a bit about what you do professionally and what is your mission in life. Wow, great questions. Um, it's kind of like free therapy here. So <laughs> I am a... <laughs> I'm a behavioral health professional. Uh, I have been a licensed counselor for about the past eight or 10 years, um, but I use my counseling degree in uh, a non-traditional way. So I'm not uh, doing individual therapy or you know working in a clinic or anything like that. I work at more of a systems level. So I started working in crisis services uh, about the time that I got my license. So while I've been working as a behavioral health professional, for about 15 years, um, I worked in uh, crisis settings, uh, specifically alternatives to psychiatric hospitals, um, and then later on at a psychiatric hospital as a clinical supervisor before going over to the macro side of healthcare or of behavioral healthcare and have been working as a consultant for a company called TBD Solutions for the past five years. So what I do now is I try to understand how communities respond to people who are in a mental health crisis. So that could uh, be anything from how uh, law enforcement is trained to respond when they um, approach a scene or they, get, they respond to a call where a person is in a mental health crisis. Um, it could be the suicide prevention hotlines and trying to support them in their staffing and hiring practices it could be the development of teams of clinicians that go out and respond to mental health crisis calls so that those people don't need to go to the emergency room or the psychiatric hospital if they don't absolutely have to. Uh, and then also talking to uh, all, all people who provide alternatives to psychiatric hospitalization, um, which I'll talk a little bit more about later, and just trying to make sure that those systems and those those services are designed with the person who's in crisis at the center and not as an afterthought, not, not designing the systems for um, the, the, the doctor's schedule or the nine to five clinic schedule, but really for the person who's in crisis, making sure that the services are affordable, um, that they are uh, outcomes driven, and that they are person-centered. Yeah, well, thank you for doing that. And it sounds like I imagine a, a, a big puzzle to try to build with all the different moving parts of agencies and private 
uh, healthcare practices and crisis lines and trying to make sure that all of that's connected in a way that best serves the person having a crisis. Um, so you mentioned uh, um, a suicidal crisis as part of this, but what is a mental health crisis in the broader sense? What can that look like? A mental health crisis is usually defined by the person that is experiencing it. So while we have criteria that people need to meet oftentimes in order to be admitted to a psychiatric hospital, um, a crisis is very personal. And so if you uh, are having the worst day of your life, that might be still better than your neighbor who has bad days all the time. Mm. Um, but your ability to cope with that that situation or that day might not be the same as, as your peers, as your family members, as your friends. And so the, the mental health crisis systems have to keep in mind that a crisis sometimes can be a subjective experience. Uh, we ask questions like, are you at risk of hurting yourself? Are you at risk of hurting someone else? And that's kind of like at the extreme level of the severity of a mental health crisis. Um, but really, I, I when I think about the continuum of crisis services that are available, I think all the way over to emotional distress. So if a person is experiencing emotional distress, if they feel overwhelmed by the, the, um, the stimulus or the stimuli or the, the experiences that are coming at them and they don't have the ability to respond to them and to, to thrive or in some cases even survive, I think that's, probably a good working definition of a mental health crisis. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for explaining that. Um, so I imagine that on any given day, there's a baseline of mental health crises that are occurring all across the country. Um, how has this been impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic? Um, are we seeing changes in uh, mental health broadly in the type or frequency of crisis that people are experiencing? That's a great question, Alex. And my first answer to that is that I think it's too early to tell. Um, but there's a couple factors that play in that, that will serve as indicators for us. So first of all, we know that about one in five Americans every year are affected by mental illness um, at, or, or are affected by mental illness at some point. So we're talking about 20% of the population, okay? Um, and what and there are some studies that are just being uh, finished up right now, both in in China as well as England. That are I know that the study in England, for example, is collecting some pre and post data about attitudes and emotions and feelings, um, kind of as COVID nineteen started in their country compared to where they are now. Since they're they're about a month, three weeks, a month ahead of us in some countries, in some cases, as far as like how this has progressed. So that's. That's what we know. Um, what I can tell you is that I've heard stories uh, from places like Detroit who have experienced a 50% decrease in the volume or requests for service in their um, the, the, the mental health crisis services that they offer. Okay, I don't think that means that everyone found uh, the best Netflix show or you know some kind of all you can eat food order service and like their their problems are not uh, are non-existent um, there are there are conversations happening with healthcare professionals that are identifying issues like even in this day and age even in 2020 there are people who did not have access to smartphones or any phones at all 
Um, if, if you're homeless or if, you are, if you're in an unstable housing situation and you don't even have access to consistent electricity to charge a phone, or to pay for the, the the bill, how the heck are you going to you know be able to use that to uh, call for crisis services? And so, what I think are the big concerns right now is we all rely on each other. You know, if anything, one one thing that 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 social distancing and uh, and 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 staying at home is is teaching me or showing me is how much I rely on human interaction and how it's actually a protective factor in mental health. And so when you don't have that, when you don't even have the person at the grocery store that you see every week that you, you know, buy your kombucha from or whatever it is, like you, you start to feel more separate and more alone. And in addition to that, the people that you're close to that you see, sometimes we need someone to just bounce thoughts off of, someone just to help remind us that we're not crazy, you know? And when, when that is um, synthesized by phone or by video chat instead of in person, it's helpful, but it's not exactly the same. And physical contact too, for those, the, those people that just need a hug every once in a while or need someone to, to connect with. You know, whether this is, that this could be people in your own family, but it could also be uh, that, that, that are living under the same roof as you, but it could also be um, widows, um, people who are single, divorced, um, you know, young professionals that live alone, whatever. Like, it, it can have these, these consequences. Um, when you start to feel alone, you, you, you might feel like you're not normal. You might allow your anxiety about COVID-19 to kind of run on a trail, um, you, uh, might, you might start to use substances more to cope with your problems or your, or your uncomfortable feelings. Um, so if you have access to drugs and alcohol, prescription medications, um, those are all concerns. And in the coming weeks, I think there are some very critical interventions or, or proactive measures that need to take place to prevent what could ultimately be deaths of despair from suicide or from untreated mental illness. Mm. Yeah, it's, uh, it seems like a pretty dire situation because in addition to even just um, being isolated and alone, there's all these other destabilizing factors like losing your job, not knowing maybe the, the pandemic's going to end, yeah. but am I going to get work again at the end of this? I'm curious what yeah. some of those... Uh, uh, risk factors or triggers for mental health crises have been traditionally, and which ones might be of particular concern for you, given the pandemic and all the things that it's um, destabilizing in people's lives. Mm-hmm. So, I think part of why this is a um, uh, a challenge of such great magnitude in our country right now is that we have not had our human needs stripped down to this level at a, at a national level um, it, it, in, as far as we can remember or as far as people who are alive can remember. So it, for, for people who have taken a Psychology 101 course or above, um, there's this gentleman named Abraham Maslow, and he created this triangle, which was a hierarchy of needs. And what it said was, we have to take care of basic needs before more advanced needs are met. And the most basic needs that we have are food, shelter, water. And then you go up, 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 up this, uh, this triangle, and then the higher levels are things like love and belonging and becoming the person who you're made to be. 
Okay. When, when 3 million people have lost their jobs, uh, they might not know where their next meal is coming from. That is a new problem that they've had to deal with. And I say, and I say this is a unique challenge for us because people who are in, let's say, a third world country or a country that has been in civil war for the past 15 or 20 years, these fears have been internalized, but they've also turned into um, uh, uh, factors that they accept and that they might use towards motivation in their behaviors. And we just haven't had to face that. We, like our motivations have been, should I pay for my Netflix subscription or my Amazon Prime subscription, at least you know, in, in the, the, some of the circles that I run in. Um, but we are bringing ourselves down on this, on this hierarchy and trying to have to make some very basic decisions. Right. And we're, we're still adjusting to that reality. So how does that increase um, uh, a factors for mental health crisis? I would always say when I was working in my crisis programs that we, when, when I was looking, when I was talking about our clients with, with my, my staff, I would say we are all two terrible life events away from being in the same shoes as this person is in. Okay. Loss of job, loss of spouse, either to death or divorce, um, uh, you know, tragic car accidents, um, you know, something that provoked, provided you a lot of stability in your life suddenly is gone. Um, that's happening right now. People are experiencing multiple, multiple losses or multiple, you know, impact events at the same time, which could put them into crisis. And if you find, if you have found your terra firma, your solid ground on your job, your, uh, like where you live, having these basic access uh, to food and resources. Think about the, the, the supplies at the grocery stores that aren't there right now, right? Like that can cause anxiety in us because we're used to trusting that something's always going to be there and it's not. So our foundations, the things that we have depended on are, are crumbling and that can have an impact on our hopefulness for the future, how we think we're going to survive. Um, and ultimately, if we don't have a lot of hope, then we start to kind of take mentality of giving up. And I think what's also hard for many Americans is that this is a mentality that they could not relate to up until a few weeks ago. And people who did have this mentality, maybe extreme depression, extreme anxiety, there was stigma that was being projected on those people because um, people who are not in that situation were saying, I don't know how you could think like that. I don't know why, why you're like that. Well, now there's a flood, there's a fury of, um, of stimuli that could contribute to more people having a mental health crisis. Yeah, this is, it's really a very equalizing event. I was trying to think if there's anything else in my lifetime or just recent history where everyone on the planet is going through the same thing at the same time. Even you think of World War II, that wasn't the whole that wasn't, it wasn't yeah. the whole world. This is really a yeah. whole world crisis. And um, yes. we're all going through something together. Um, so you have, uh, you've put a lot of effort and focus into improving the infrastructure for mental health crisis support. Um, mm -hmm. What has that traditionally looked like? And what have some of the um, successes or shortcomings of it been? And then I want to move into how has the pandemic changed the infrastructure of crisis support? Wonderful questions. Um, so for starters, 
let's go back to the 1930s in the United States and think about when someone had a medical emergency, um, what would happen to that person, okay? Um, you were probably fortunate, if you, if you took your, the home of your doctor, who back in that day was making house calls, and you drew radius circles around your doctor's home, that, was that would probably give you a visual indication of your chances of success in, in living through um, a physical crisis, a medical crisis, based on how close you live to him. Because if he's, if you're 30 miles away and you're having a heart attack, like you might just want to, you know, have your, have your spouse versed in like your last rites because you're, you might not make it. Okay. So as our, um, our population expands, our ideas on how to treat people expand. And so then the emergency departments were actually an invention, so to speak, of mm -hmm. the hospitals back in the 1940s, where they said, let's have one place where people who have emergencies go. And they would put the, the worst, not the worst, the least experienced doctors at the emergency departments to just say, hey, we don't know what's going to come in the door, so just good luck, okay? What it evolved into was a place where um, some of the doctors who wanted the biggest challenges or who could be the best problem solvers would then work. And, and it's, it's formalized, and we have thousands of ERs now across the country. Um, but what has happened is that we have... Um, bottlenecked or directed our behavioral health crises through the same channels as our medical uh, emergencies, okay? So up until 40 years ago, 30, 40 years ago, that was 911 and the emergency room. That is where everybody in a psychiatric emergency went. And then by the way, it was either a psychiatric hospital or see a therapist in a few weeks when they can fit you in. Those were kind of our options, okay? So in the 1970s, Medicaid-funded providers started innovating on what they could do with these resources that could save money, still provide good treatment, and keep people happy, keep the, the, the person in crisis happy. And so uh, the first development in the 1950s was a suicide prevention hotline. And this happened out in LA. All of the county uh, fire departments came together and said, this is, uh, well, actually that was the 911 impetus, but, but, but uh, in LA, um, they said, we need a, a hotline. We have this technology. We have a phone, which hasn't been around for very long. We need to use it for good. And so that was really cool because then that suicide hotline popped up and now there's over 700 suicide prevention hotlines in the country. Okay. So then people looked at, um, the impact of a person who's mentally ill on the criminal justice system. And in the 1980s, after a tragic death, um, a, a team, a, a law enforcement a team in Memphis formed something called CIT, crisis intervention teams. Those are intended to provide training to law enforcement um, to um, help people who are uh, having a mental health emergency and know how to respond to them without necessarily looking at them as a threat. So there's all these innovations that kind of take place. And what you end up with is that in a comprehensive community of which I would say there's probably less than 25 cities that have all of these levels of care in the country. But here's what you've got. You've got your crisis call centers, which are instead of having people call 911, they're calling the suicide prevention lifeline, they're using a crisis text line, they're using some sort of resource to get their mental health emergency addressed. Then you've got your mobile crisis teams, 
which can go out and help divert people from psychiatric hospitalization. Then you have emergency rooms that are being developed just for people in psychiatric emergencies, okay, to keep people out of the ERs. And then you have peer respite centers, which are focused on um, emotional distress, where a person can have all kinds of agency over their problem, and they really just need some relief from their current situation. So think of it as like if you or I would go to like a hostel or something for a few days um, to just get away from our problems. And, you know, we don't need a doctor. We don't need a therapist. We just we need a peaceful place. That's what that's like. Then you have these crisis residential facilities. These are home-like environments that were tested in the 1970s that showed equal or better outcomes to psychiatric hospitals. And it's this idea of community-based living. You know, what if I could, instead of having to go to a locked psychiatric hospital, what if I could go to a home that's about two miles away from my house and I could be in a home-like environment and still see a doctor a couple times a week, um, but have more comfort and more um, peace as I'm getting treatment, okay? So you've got all those levels of care, and then the psychiatric hospitals, which still exist in in most communities, um, but every level of that system is trying to keep people from going to the next level if they don't absolutely have to, okay? We call that diversion. So if each level has 80% goals for diversion from going to the next level of care, then by the time you have 500 people that call the crisis call center and you get to a decision of whether or not the people who are the most acute need to go into the psychiatric hospital, you're sending less than 10 people from that group of 500 that actually have to go to the psych hospital. Um, I've heard it phrased by some leaders in crisis services and they say, if you don't have this array of services, you're hospitalizing people who do not need to be hospitalized. So here's what's happening. So in in a perfect system, everything's functioning. There's good care coordination and handoffs all along that system. Here's where we see problems today and the problems that we could see in the future, okay? States and the federal government are identifying what essential services are at this point. Certainly, healthcare is, is considered essential service, but the details are sometimes not spelled out in every community. So if I've got one of these 700 crisis uh, residential programs in my country, so there's 700 call centers, there's also 700 crisis residential programs in the country, okay? So if I have one of these crisis residential programs and I say, you know, the exposure's too much, it's more than 10 beds, we can't have that program running. Well, now all of a sudden you have something that would have either diverted people from the ER or from the psych hospital that doesn't have capacity. And here's the problem, okay, Alex? Our ERs are filling up. They, our elective surgeries are being canceled in hospitals. We cannot have the people that are normally going to the ER for psychiatric emergencies, which is five to 10% of all people presenting to ERs across the country is for psychiatric emergencies. So we're talking about thousands of people per day. We cannot have them coming to the ER right now. We have to have another place for them to go. A psychiatric ER, sometimes they're called a crisis stabilization unit, um, crisis residential services, whatever it is. We also have a problem because the psychiatric hospitals are decreasing their census capacity. So a 100-bed psychiatric hospital might only be keeping 60 to 75 beds open right now to practice social distancing and to make sure that there's not contagion if somebody has the the illness, right, Or, or, or contracts the virus. So... We have to do prevention as much as possible on the front end. 
those crisis call centers have to be operational. You know, those mobile crisis teams have to be operational. But wait, mobile crisis teams are starting to be shut down because they have in-person interactions. Right. And so even though a bunch of telehealth laws have been passed, now those, um, those mobile crisis teams, maybe they don't have the tablets yet to send out to EMS or to police officers. And they're left in a bind. And so they say, how can we be helpful? The crisis call centers in smaller communities and more rural communities rely on volunteers and students to man their call centers. All the, all the colleges are closed and those students have gone home. They haven't built the infrastructure, the IT infrastructure to take these calls remotely. And some of them are, and it's taking a couple of days or a couple of weeks. Some of them don't really have an answer. So yeah. we are preparing ourselves for what could be a perfect storm if we don't have as many parts of this crisis continuum functional as possible. And um, yeah, thank you for explaining that. Um, so it sounds like someone could be having a uh, psychiatric emergency, a mental health, health crisis, and all of the channels that they've been told through PSAs over the years to rely on might be dead ends right now. So you could show up, um, maybe you drive over to the ER, and you're turned away because they're only taking in uh, COVID-19 patients, or um, maybe you don't want to go there because you don't want to be exposed to potentially getting the coronavirus. Um, you might call, uh, there might be um, um, a psychiatric uh, house or hospital that you've maybe been to in the past and it was a positive experience or you want to try one now and there's they've downsized their staff or their social distancing and there's not room for you. Um, so it sounds like the challenge is not just getting alternate services up and running, but even getting the word out of how to change your, your crisis plan right now, because I imagine it's a huge blow to someone who's already having a hard experience to uh, take the initiative and risk to try to get help and then be turned away or have it be a dead end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. So what, what, what I'm, uh, so a couple of roles that I take on in addition to my job as a consultant. So I am also the president of the Crisis Residential Association. So we represent some of those 700 crisis residential programs across the country. And right now we're trying to advocate to make sure that those, uh, those providers are included in conversations, critical conversations happening at the the community and the state level about essential services, but also about equipping them. You know, the staff have to feel safe, which means they need PPE. The staff should be probably compensated for hazard pay or for whatever exposure they're getting. Um, and, and we need those services to function so that they can be a solution or an answer to the problems. I also serve as a co-chair of the Crisis Services Committee for the American Association of Suicidology. So I'm also taking a suicide prevention lens here and saying, okay, we know that um, a hunt, over 100 people a day die by suicide in the United States. And by the way, the COVID numbers, I just saw some data yesterday, has, are exceeding that in the United States. I think the COVID deaths per day right now, you know, whatever, end of March here is what we're talking about this, yeah. is um, uh, 350 per day or something like that. But <clears throat> uh, we, we don't want to see those suicide numbers go up. So what we're trying to do in partnership with some digital uh, health solutions, so like wellness apps, mental health wellness apps, um, as well as some of these trade associations or providers 
Uh, so we're talking about the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, the Veterans Crisis Line, um, uh, Crisis Text Line, National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, is that we need to get the word out, not just that these services are available, because we certainly are going to have some first-time um, service recipients or people accessing these services, but we also have to communicate a message of when these services are changing or adapting in communities, and it has to be quickly, okay? Um, so like I said earlier, the, um, the, the demand is not super high from what I'm hearing right now, but that doesn't mean it, it couldn't escalate quickly. And we've got to have the infrastructure in place and the messaging in place to tell people where to go. But if you're stripping away all of the in-person services, which we have by and large done, I mean, out of that whole continuum that I just mentioned, there's only three that are still available besides the ER, which I'm kind of putting off the table right yeah. now because I don't want to send a person in a crisis to the ER. And that is your psychiatric hospitals, which have a decreased capacity, your crisis residential facilities, some of which have a decreased capacity, and your 23-hour programs. So as those other services have become less available or have less capacity, it just increases the importance to have capacity in these other services. That also means, so that means communicating the message to the people that could use it. But here's, here's where, where me and some of my colleagues are leaning right now. The, the prevention effort, the, the caring outreach, the intentional outreach to people has to just soar right now mm. because that is prevention. If you've read any of the research on, on, uh, on something called postvention, which, mean, which means follow-up after a suicide attempt or after a mental health crisis, um, you know that, that, that the, con- the follow-up and the care, they're called non-demand caring contacts. That means I'm, I'm reaching out to you because I care about you, not because you missed your appointment or not because I need you to come in for a lab draw. Okay? okay, so if we have the, uh, the, the human capacity, which I think we do with so many people at home right now, underemployed or unemployed, either in an informal or a formal way, we have to make those caring contacts soar to prevent mental health crisis. We can't prevent all of it, but we have to do something on the front end to decrease demand on the back end. We need to flatten the curve for mental health crisis, really. Right, especially it sounds especially important because the um, the crisis services available if the prevention fails and someone finds themselves in a crisis is in flux right now. So the more people that you can reach before they're in a crisis, um, uh, the more lives saved. Um, what do yes. some of those uh, prevention uh, prevention outreach uh, tactics look like, and how can they be adapted to um, the pandemic currently? So I recognize that crisis providers, um, in addition to have already having made a lot of difficult decisions about their staffing and their operations and infrastructure, will continue to have to do so. And there's a phrase that is common in the nonprofit world, which is no money, no mission. Okay, you can have all the dreams in the world and, and, and ambitions and Pollyanna ideas, and you can pursue them. But if you're not getting paid to do so, you just won't last very long. You won't be able to keep your lights on. So that being said, I think that the funders, which could be the, um, the county-funded Medicaid arms or the state, the state Medicaid arms, 
or the health plans, and this could include the commercial health plans, because commercial health plans need to find solutions for their members. And many of them have not been using this crisis service array that I, that I uh, mentioned earlier, but that doesn't mean that they can't now. And this might be a critical time for them to, to utilize those. But as far as solutions, so going back to the providers here, how can you do, you know, can you talk to your funder about getting paid every time one of your case managers or therapists does an outreach that's not based on a, a minimum of like, I need to do, you know, one contact a month to keep my caseload compliant, but like, how many can you do, you know, and, and what would that look like and how can you keep it professional, um, but sincere? And so I would try and get on a professional level, I try to get as many people who can make calls so that sometimes they actually have people with lived experience. So peer support specialists will make these calls. And that's also a great idea because you get just an increased level of empathy. But, at, but today, I, I think, as I find on every call, like I'm with you today, um, uh, I'm always starting calls and so are the people who I'm talking to with some empathy. You know, how's it going? How are you handling this? Like you said, it's a universal experience that we've never known. The globe has never known this kind of universal experience. So we have some common talking points. Um, so that's a professional level is, is ramp up the caring contacts, the outreach, do that as, as much as you possibly can and, and even focus on your target group. So people who have been in the hospital in the past 90 days, people who use the emergency room frequently, people who, are, who live alone, people with a substance use history, um, pick those those factors that can have a correlation with either suicide attempts or depression or anxiety and, and use that as kind of like the target group that you're doing outreach to. The second thing I would say is on a personal level, and I think that we have to practice what we're preaching, is um, thinking, uh, trying to um, do an honest assessment, a self-assessment of what kind of capacity we have to help other people, knowing that right now the only way that we can help people is in non-physical or non-in-the-same-place um, uh, ways. And so that's phone calls. That's, that's FaceTime stuff, right? So we're, we're all kind of honing in on our tribe right now. As we say, who am I keeping in touch with on a daily basis or a couple times a week? Like, those are probably people that are the most important to me, Okay. But I, I encourage people to take that one step further and say, you know, who do I know that either they or a family member have been in the psychiatric hospital in the last year? Who do I know that struggles with loneliness and with seasonal affective disorder and some of these other things? And we have to go beyond the comfort, our own comfort level and say, well, it would be weird if I call them or it would be weird to text them or whatever. And we've got to get to a point where we say like, no, this is like, the, the resource, the golden resource that we have is our presence right now. That is the gift that we can give people. And we have to, we have to give it as, as often as we can while still keeping ourselves healthy. But gosh, we've never needed each other, I would say, more than we do right now. And if you want to present, prevent mental, mental illness or mental health crisis, you want to prevent suicide, like it's, it's an outreach. It's writing a letter. It's, it's a phone call. Um, Lord knows a lot of us have time to do these things right now, but it is about intention and how we distribute our time that will tell us at the end how we get out on the other side of this. Mm. And it sounds like that's um, 
the way you're saying that is it's uh, uh, helping people who are going through mental health challenges is something all of us can do by being a friend, by making phone calls, by being more intentional. Um, and uh, in a way, maybe this pandemic will help normalize that because that's the only way to get in touch with people. And um, we're yeah. seeing everyone's vulnerabilities, including our own. So um, maybe that could be a silver lining to this as people get more used to checking in on each other. Yeah, I love that. Um, and we've had excuses for why we haven't done that before, right? I'm busy, I'm tired, I'm, you know, whatever, insert your excuse. Um, but if they, if they mean something to us, if they matter, then we gotta, we gotta use our actions to demonstrate our values. Yep. So, um, let's say, uh, you find yourself experiencing a mental health crisis, um, starting to, uh, to really struggle. Um, what is, what is, um, a practical approach to getting help right now? and a perspective that you can hold while you're seeking help that might help you um, overcome the obstacles and the chaos in the healthcare system. So practical steps and then sort of a mindset to navigate the more complex uh, system currently. That's a great question. Um, two things come to mind. The, the first, the, the first on the practical side is if you are experiencing considerable emotional stress or you're experiencing uh, a, a, a mental health crisis, call the suicide prevention lifeline. Um, they are a network of crisis call centers across the country. So of those 700 that I mentioned, 160 of them are these members. And the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline number is 1-800-273-8255. So that's one way. Another way, if you want to do it by text, is to contact the, the, the crisis text line. Um, and the crisis text line, if you um, text HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741-741, you can get connected with a crisis counselor. Um, what I also recommend is that you reach out to your health plan if you have health insurance, Let's whether it's Medicaid, Medicare, or, or private insurance or VA health insurance. Call your, call your health plan and ask them what would happen, what services would they pay for or have they contracted with if you were to go into a mental health crisis. Like, what is the first thing that you should be doing, okay? And if they tell you, we'll go to the emergency room, say, well, Travis didn't uh, tell me to do that. And he's a licensed counselor, but he's not a doctor, but he didn't tell me to do that. No, but, but that, this needs to be proactive. It needs to be a proactive conversation because it's about your health and it's about your well-being. So um, those are a couple of things that I would do is, is call for help. Your, your communities actually probably have a local crisis hotline too. You might be able to call your local 211 and find out what that crisis number is. There's so many of them. I would say I can't, I can't give them all out. Um, but that's one strategy where to find some context or some peace as, as maybe a preventative tool or as a, uh, uh, anxiety reducing tool is that, um, 
many people are experiencing the world just as you are experiencing it right now. That many people are anxious, many people are scared, um, and th that can cause feelings of distress and hopelessness, and it can cause us to do um, rash things that we um, might regret later. So um, there are some specific strategies um, on a website that I'm going to share with you, which is called Now Matters Now. Um, and it's uh, some, some good like preventative uh, techniques and ideas on how to get yourself out of those unhealthy um, thoughts or ideas. Um, and if you go to their helpline, or they have a, an area called Crisis Help, which you can click and it tells you um, the same hotlines that I just mentioned, as well as others, um, not just in the US, but in other countries. Um, but just try to normalize some of your fears. And um, the other thing I would say is try to make yourself aware of what um, stimuli cause you anxiety and what is a reasonable threshold of information that you can take in in a given day and where you want to take that from. Because there's no shortage of, of information coming in. And to be honest, even as a mental health professional, it, it instills fear inside of me when I listen to, to too much of it, okay? So it's kind of like if you've heard of the serenity prayer. Um, the serenity prayer is about what you can control, what you can't control, and the wisdom to know the difference between those two things. And so I would say, um, you know, what information is helpful for you to hear to keep you safe? What information is, is bringing you hope? in this darkness, in this dark time that we're living in. Um, and then what is the best way that you can love yourself um, in this moment? And is that shutting it down, closing the laptop, putting the phone to the side and saying, um, I could access all that information, but that's not good for me right now to do. But there's many other strategies you can find online, mental health strategies, but those are a couple that come to mind. Great, thanks. And uh, um, I know you're uh, uh, working in the mental health world, but um, I, I love that you have this view of a whole person, whole, whole systems of services. Uh, so I'm curious to hear from you. Um, are there any practical tips, um, practices that you're employing or that you can recommend to people, um, not just related to mental health, but how to thrive and feel happier and healthier through this tough period of being isolated and going through a global crisis? Yeah, sure. Um, what I have found helpful in the last couple of weeks is trying to distill out my wants versus my needs. And I want to um, probably like look at my friend's memes about the coronavirus or about uh, Tiger King or whatever it is that's like catching people's attention. I want to numb. I want to avoid. Um, I want to keep it light and happy. Um, what I need is uh, distance from um, my work or uh, occasionally my stressors when that's when that's a healthy thing to do. I need to get outside. Um, I've been on more walks in the last week than I went on the previous probably six months. So um, that's, it's just good for me to get out. And of course, like sometimes when I'm going, I'm doing that with my kids. And then we have conversations that we're just not 
prone to having in, in the home. And, you know, I get out with people or I'm making a phone call and, and it's a long phone call because I'm on a walk. And so um, I call it getting to page two. So if you read the newspaper and you see like the headline story, it says continued on page two. Um, a lot of times my wife and I will say during a, a regular week, a non-COVID week, like we don't get to page two. Like we hear the headline stories, but we don't get to the why or we don't get to like all those details. And so I'm, I'm hungry for that. And I'm trying to pursue that in my relationships. Um, but I, I would, the other thing I would say is that it's okay to feel sad. It's okay to feel uncomfortable emotions and to just sit with them. We've had so many opportunities, um, as our, um, society has just has morphed. We have so many opportunities to numb and to get away from our feelings. And I think it's okay to not feel good or to feel a little, um, sad or, um, pessimistic and to just sit in that feeling and not have to act on it, not have to feel like that means all these other things. Um, a, a modality of treatment that I really love is something called acceptance and commitment therapy. Mm. Acceptance and commitment therapy teaches us to recognize that this brain in our head has been keeping us alive ancestrally for generations, and that's great. But it's also constantly trying to find the threat and sometimes the threat is not as big as we perceive it in our head. So instead of thinking, instead of embracing this idea that I think, therefore I am, we say, I am, therefore I think. I am a human being that has all kinds of thoughts, but I don't need to believe every single one that I have. And the other component, component to, to acceptance and commitment therapy is living out your values, okay? So if you can't control everything in the world, as, as we kind of identified in that little serenity prayer detail, um, what what would show your values? What are the three most important values that you have in your life? Let's say it was family, health, and, um, and peace or something like that. Then you're going to spend time with your family. You're going to do things that are healthy and you're going to try to find ways to bring peace into the world. And you can control your actions based on those every day, even if you are on lockdown. Yep. That, those are, those are great uh, pieces of advice. Um, so we're we're calling this initiative closer social distancing. Uh, the idea is uh, finding ways to stay connected to humanity, to our loved ones, to ourselves, while we're physically apart from so many things. Um, what are what is a unique or creative way that you've been able to connect with people in your life while you're stuck at home? <laughs> That's a great question. Um... I started a text chain this weekend with um, uh, friends from high school, which I've kept in touch with maybe individually on an occasional basis, but um, hadn't collectively caught up. And uh, it was just so funny to see all of their pictures and like how they're coping. And um, sometimes you only see the feed of like someone, you know, in like an Instagram, like curated fashion, right? Like best life ever kind of, kind of approach. And it was just a great reminder that like, there are millions, tens of hundreds of millions of us across the country right now that are all having broken moments that are all living epic days of meaninglessness or deep meaning, depending on the hour, you know? And so to just to see pictures of their kids, um, to, to just, you know, reminisce on like an old joke or an old experience. Like that was, that was good for my brain to, 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 to engage that. 
Um, and then doing some happy hours with people, um, you know, not having to be physically closed, do it virtually, I should say. Um, but just, uh, doing a happy hour with coworkers at five o'clock on, on Friday. Um, that was a really fun way to just, cause I, I sometimes things are becoming more business because, you know, the, the only time you're seeing people is when you have a meeting. And so it was a great way to relax and still see people and kind of take curiosity in each other, um, in a structured way. I found both of those things just to be really helpful. Yeah, those sound great. The high school text thread and virtual happy hour. Uh, good ideas. Um, ones that I'll uh, try to implement. Um, yeah. So uh, before we leave off, I want to see if there's just any anything else you want to share with people who might be listening, um, uh, whether it's a, re- a resource, a positive message, um, some inspiration. Just um, what do you want to leave people with? Yeah. So there was a, one of the questions um, I realized I didn't answer when you started, which is kind of like, what is my purpose in life? And uh, I I would say a purpose of my life is to try and bring order to chaos in the world, to try and um, be a part of, of positive change of justice and equity in places where those things don't exist. And as I have been taking in the news at, my my community level at a state level at a, a national and global level um it can certainly be disheartening to hear all of the tragedy that's happening but i also embrace a belief that um humans are incredibly strong and resilient and good and we are the the whole reason that we're that we're um, engaging in social distancing is because we care about everyone, um, not just um, the people who are healthy, not just the young, but that we we really want everyone to live and to live a good life. And that's that's an encouraging place to be as a society, especially as you look at the past you know few hundred or few thousand years of of different oppressions. Um, but I am humbled by the will and spirit of fellow humans that I get to work with every day and to see how they are rising from some of these most, the the most darkest hours that maybe they've, that we've ever experienced together and trying to make something beautiful, trying to honor one another's humanity by um, desperately and feverishly um, coming up with solutions to the globe, the, the, the greatest global, excuse me, the greatest global challenges that we're experiencing. And so I am feeling all of the feels <laughs> most days, um, at the, at the extremes, but gosh, uh, I have a lot of hope and a lot of faith that we can do things together that we never imagined possible and that we will, surprise um, ourselves and each other and and that uh, we'll we'll do something really wonderful together something that we can all be really proud of thanks for tuning in to closer social distancing please share this podcast episode with anyone in your network who works in healthcare health administration or health policy we've got more great interviews coming your way so hit subscribe Stay healthy, and we'll see you next time.